A woman's right to choose is under renewed attack in America, and the federal protection it has benefited from for so long, however tenuous, is closer than ever to going away. That protection is just one final vote away now from triggering myriad, draconian, dangerous laws in states across the country. As ever, what is most important is to understand the intimate, horrific invasion of privacy this is for any given woman, and the danger it puts each woman in, even before they get pregnant. But why does forced delivery put pregnant people in such danger? As ever, it's also vitally important we understand the underlying systems behind any singular issue. It's what we try to do here. We ask, why is this this way? And then, does it have to be this way? And that's always true, especially here in America, where these systems are so complex and connected, often tied to profit and designed to entrench marginalized people in castes, basically, that are otherwise inescapable. It is 14 times more deadly to deliver a baby than to have a legal abortion in America. We have no universal health care. We have no mandatory paid sick leave. We have no mandatory paid parental leave. We have no mandatory paid time off. Preschool is unaffordable. Child care is unaffordable. Mental health care is unaffordable. Diapers are often unaffordable. And so before this, before this decision comes down, before they use this precedent now and legal approach to start to ban abortions immediately after conception, before they try to ban contraception altogether and more, we already have some of the highest maternal death rates in the developed world. And if you're poor or a black woman or both, they're even higher three to four times higher than white people. And as we've learned, because they shared their stories with the world, it doesn't matter if you're Beyonce or Serena Williams, if you're rich or famous. Last year, I had Representative Lauren Underwood of Illinois on the show to talk about the heartbreaking reason why maternal health is means so much to her and about her incredible Momnibus Act, which has shown a lot of progress, about how and why we treat moms the way we do in this country, but of course, most importantly, what the hell all of us can do about it. And that's more important than ever now, this week. I learned so much from Lauren. We got an overwhelming response from folks inside and outside the systems who are fighting for better maternal care every day but also folks who truly were privileged enough, frankly, to not understand the scope of how dangerous it is to have a baby in America. So Lauren is an inspiration and a leader, and I couldn't think of a more appropriate conversation to replay this week in light of everything. So please enjoy, and as always, you can send feedback to me at questions at importantnotimportant.com. Our guest today is Congresswoman Lauren Underwood, and together we're asking, why is it so dangerous to have Black babies in America? Congresswoman, welcome. Thank you. I'm so delighted to be with you today. Oh my gosh, you have infinite energy compared to us. It's uh... Yeah, this is the best. 
Yeah. <laughs> Can you be our co-host? Maybe. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Brian. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Maybe we'll uh, we'll have an audition for your role later. Yeah. Perfect. She's nailed it already. Um. Seriously. Thank you so much for being here, Lauren. Um. Uh. If we could just uh, uh give give a, a quick uh, brief little intro uh, to our uh, listeners. Um. Uh, of just of who you, who you are and what you do. Sure. I'm Lauren Underwood. I have the great honor of being a congresswoman from Northern Illinois. It's the 14th congressional district. I'm a nurse. Um, I do a lot in the health policy space and I love science. Yes. Um, that sounds amazing. This is the part where I promised Brian you guys could talk about Chicago for a minute. So Brian, go oh, yeah. ahead. Only for a second. Uh, okay. I didn't grow. I didn't grow up in the city, but uh, I spent most of my youth in the West suburbs. Mm-hmm. Um, m- m- most of my time was in Westmont. I think Westmont is in your district. Not quite. Uh, I'm in Naperville. Naperville. And okay, so, so we're we have close. Naperville, Aurora, Geneva, Batavia, St. Charles. We have six flags. Yes, oh, that's flags. big. That's mm-hmm. big. Mm-hmm. We were just talking about Bush Gardens before the show started. Mm-hmm. Well, see, that's not as good. So, um, no, absolutely not. We're a big fan of Great America here. <laughs> Hold on. It's one of our largest employers. Yes. And we need our attractions, amusement, our tourism, our travel to come back after 100%. the pandemic. 100%. I love it. Are you a roller coaster person? We can take this offline if necessary. No. <laughs> Got it. Okay. No, but I am a snack person. Sure. I yes. am. I love, I will stand in line with you for the roller coaster. And then okay. I will cheer you on. And then I will yeah. make fun endlessly at like that, that snapshot of fear. Mm-hmm. Oh, so good. So good. <laughs> but when yeah. you're in line, is it, is it big soft pretzel or is it dip and dots? Like what's your game? Not the pretzels. Mm-hmm. You know, my first job, I worked at uh, a, a neighborhood pool in the concession stand. And mm-hmm. so all we sold were the pretzels and the hot dogs. And I have my fair mm-hmm. share for mm-hmm. life. Yeah, 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 yeah. So um, I will pass on that pretzel with the rock salt. No, I, sure, yeah, sure, I, sure. I get it. It's, it's It seems like a great idea at the time. And then it's just so, it's just so much. I like the- You know what's good is a theme park is a churro. Delicious. Sure, it's churros are good. On snack. a hot day, the 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 paper cone, the triangle cone with the with the ice and all the, the you can ice. pump, sure, pump sure, the sure. pump into it. That's <laughs> yeah, a good the stuff. lemon ice. Oh, so uh, good. <clears throat> oh, it's so good. This um, is starting off so well. Okay, let, there you go, Brian. There's your minute. <laughs> awesome. Uh, what? Yeah, fine. Westmont's not in your district. That's fine. Naperville's wonderful. I went to the Riverwalk all the time as as a young boy. It was the best. Yes, snap. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> awesome. All right, so. Uh, Thank you for that. Uh, uh, as a reminder to everyone here, uh, our goal is to, uh, we'll provide some context for our topic or our question today, uh, and then we'll dig into action-oriented questions and what everybody out there listening can do to help support uh, what we're talking about here today, if that sounds good. Sounds great. Rock and roll. Um, Congresswoman, we do like to start with one important question to set the tone uh, for this mess. Instead of saying, tell us your life story, as exciting mm-hmm. as I'm sure that is, we like to ask, why are you vital to the survival of the species? Oh. Mm. Um, I encourage you to be bold. Okay. Well, I would just say that I bring a voice that Congress has never heard. And it is very important to have representation in the Congress in order to solve persistent problems like we've seen with maternal mortality. It took a millennial Black woman to come to Congress to bring folks together on a bipartisan basis to save mom's lives. And we've made unprecedented progress, um, but we still have a ways to go. And so I think that I am essential, not just for my sunny disposition and you know willingness to fight for democracy, but also to speak up for people who have just been used as political punching bags. 
for too long, had our rights eroded. People like to make characterizations of us, like caricatures, right? Of young Black people, like what? No, we we deserve to be at these tables too. Awesome. I love that. Yes. Um, you're That's right. pretty damn vital. It, it, it shouldn't have taken uh, someone like you uh, coming to Congress, but uh, we are we are thankful for you nonetheless. All right, just some uh, quick quick contest, uh, context today. Come on, coffee. Okay. Come on. For all of our listeners out there, uh, according to the World Health Organization, uh, mm-hmm. maternal mortality is defined as the death of a woman while pregnant or within 42 days of termination of pregnancy, irrespective of the duration and site of the pregnancy, from any cause related to or aggravated by the pregnancy or its management, but not from accidental or incidental causes. Does that line up? So we actually don't use the WHO definition Perfect. because oh. theirs cuts off. I was going to say that's early. Six weeks postpartum. Mm-hmm. And um, some states use a 60-day postpartum definition, which is also not good. What we mm-hmm. embrace is the full year postpartum Okay, um, because we see uh, uh, deaths, or severe illness from pregnancy-related causes up to that full year postpartum, over a quarter of pregnancy-related complications and deaths occur a full year postpartum, and that is our opportunity to save lives. And so what we are trying to do, and so I I co-found and and co-chair the Black Maternal Health Caucus, and we are working to pass policy solutions to save lives from that prenatal labor and delivery to the immediate postpartum to the extended postpartum period. Okay. That's, that's actually super helpful. I, I, I appreciate it uh, for you, for you explaining that to me. And we'll just, we'll just, I'll just take another step down in my self-confidence. Nope. <laughs> we love the WHO. We and, do. And, but We're we back. can do better on that definition here in America. Okay. I, I like it. Uh, again, p- keep correcting me. Uh, despite Please, being I love the, it richest country in the history of the world, America has the highest maternal mortality rate among developed countries. Is that correct? Right. And that is going up, I believe. The uh, only rate that's rising. Oh, perfect. We're doing great. Wow. Um, and I want to make sure I get this one correct. Uh, black women are dying at three times the rates of white women. Is that correct? Three to four times. Yep. Three to four times. Okay. And we're going to... It's a decimal. So we just say the range. Yeah. Three yeah. To four times. Mm-hmm. Perfect. It's not great. And we're going to get into the why today, which is the inputs uh, for these complex problems like this uh, pre-birth and after. And the infuriating part of all of these deaths is that they are uh, preventable. Um, That's right. Quinn, can I give you one more fact? But by by all means, this is your show. For every death, there are 70, 70 near misses. So we talk a lot about mortality death rates. But the other problem is severe morbidity. Sure. And as a result, particularly around among Black people, we all know somebody yeah. because we're talking about this universe of people who have been touched by severe morbidity or mortality just trying to have babies. And that's important. And, and, I, and I do want to dig into that as well, which is like you were saying, you know, it's easy to focus on the deaths and we should be, but, but there's so much else ar- around that. So that's what I want to get into today is, is why is it so dangerous to have black babies in America, to carry black babies in America? Congresswoman, again, keep correcting me. Uh, you've got two degrees in nursing and another in public health. That's uh, right. You worked for a gentleman named Barack Obama uh, uh, and at the Department of Health and Human Services. You taught at Georgetown. Now you're a congresswoman. The bona fides to be, to be doing what you're doing are extensive. It's exhausting, frankly, for those of us who who, who have a podcast. Um, <laughs> but look, in, in all seriousness, 
my first goal, I want to get down to um, the fundamental pieces here, the first principles of this problem. Um, so this is probably going to seem a little bit like small potatoes, but I want to paint the picture, uh, especially for folks out there um, who haven't been through a pregnancy or a birth or a miscarriage or a death, uh, what the healthcare process is supposed to look like from the blood test to confirm pregnancy through post-delivery OBGYN checkups for the mother. Um, could you just briefly describe what, I guess, for lack of a better term, what that standard of care is supposed to look like so that later we can talk about what's missing or broken? Sure. Um, so typically, a birthing person finds out that they're pregnant um, sometime in what we call the first trimester. Uh, then they typically uh, select a provider. Oftentimes, that birthing person lives in a community where they have a choice of providers. Um, that is something that particularly people who are planning pregnancies look forward to is picking a provider that they connect with and that they're excited about, mm -hmm. picking a hospital or other delivery center that they feel comfortable in. That is something that people affirmatively look forward to when they have that choice. And then there's a variety of tests. Right, that get done to you know make sure that the fetus is healthy and um, you know some great coaching that happens between that provider, the birthing person, and their support system, family, partner, whomever. Mm -hmm. um, typically, uh, there are opportunities for more intense coaching that you know think like Lamaze class, sure, <laughs> you know, something right. like that that happens as that due date comes closer. And then um, as that, this is again, a term healthy pregnancy as that due date approaches, um, typically uh, there is a little bit of anxiety and anticipation and something called like Braxton Hicks contractions, which are not mm -hmm. like labor, like you're not in active labor, but sometimes people think they're in active labor. Sure feels labor. like it. Yes. Wow, yeah. So um, you make some extra visits to that provider because you think you're about to have a baby and then they send you home. But eventually um, labor starts. And typically in the United States, there is uh, you either are at a hospital or birthing center or at home. But if you're at the birthing center or at home, you have a provider there with you. And after, you know, 12, 20 hours, whatever. <laughs> let's just be normal. Like, let's just normalize, sure. right? Like, yeah. yes. Sometimes a very long time, um, particularly for a first delivery. Then at the end of it, you have, and, and, and in an ideal world, you have an affirmative, supportive birthing team, like a provider team that is caring for uh, the birthing person during that delivery. You have baby, the baby is healthy. Uh, you go through all of the, you know, the APGAR and, you know, all these things, like right when the baby gets born to make sure everything's all set. Uh, mom and baby, you know, have some skin to skin time. You do your like footprints and your handprints and you take your pictures. <laughs> and then typically in the United States, within 48 hours, you're sent home. <laughs> You're sitting right. home and you're like, figure it out. Sure. Yeah. Good luck. It's <laughs> human alive. Sure. Ooh. Right, right, right. Suddenly Man, there's a, you scary. have a new roommate. They're very small. Yes. They have a lot of needs. Yep. <laughs> and then over those next few months, can you talk a little bit about, uh, again, briefly, sort of what the typical, like you said, healthy pregnancy, healthy delivery for mom and baby, what those sort of checkups look for, like for the mother? 
So typically postpartum, you mean? Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. So typically after the delivery, there's like one visit. Okay. For the mom. Okay. And many visits for the baby. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes there's more if there is like a cesarean um, and if there's some kind of, you know, issue with um, the healing. Mm -hmm. But typically it's just like that one. Sure. And again, in a, in a healthy, everybody's fine, no postpartum depression sort of situation. Well, I would not say that that is the ideal. Sure. There to just be one because in an ideal scenario, um, that family has some support beyond their obstetrician, their midwife, someone who's going to be in that like primary care setting. Mm -hmm. Right. So maybe they get a home visit. Maybe they're getting, you know, a doula or lactation consultant. Right. Like something like that, Mm -hmm. um, where that provider in the office is not the only person in that supportive network. So it's uh, not ideal, but the standard. Correct. Okay. Okay. Okay, Perfect. Thank you for doing that. I I really appreciate it. Um, I I have somehow made three children, um, but it's obviously uh, much more verifiable coming from you than from me. But that's consistent (laughs) with your experience. Yeah. It is. We had a, uh, yeah, without too much inside baseball, we, we had a lot of trouble making our kids and, mm-hmm. uh, uh, we couldn't, we never actually figured out why. And we were very lucky to do a lot of IVF. Uh, we had a bunch of miscarriages and a bunch of them not work. And then on sort of a last shot, we were able to make our first child. One of those, they put the embryo in, they were like, see you never, uh, because science wasn't working in our favor. And then it did. And then, uh, yeah, and then we science helped us make the second one, and then of course the third one was a a accident during breastfeeding because why not? Oh wow! <laughs> yeah, I mean why not? So but look, nice. we were we were it was very difficult at times. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's obviously especially for my wife. You know, sitting on the bed and eventually getting to the point where you're scrolling through egg donors and, and things like that. But uh, again, we were very privileged to be able to to follow the course that we did to to do what we did. So ours was. I mean, about a hundred more checkups than that over the course of all of it, uh, including one very long uh, hospital stay, which I, I think is one of the thing in a very good hospital in Los Angeles. Not everybody gets that standard of care by any stretch. Um, so we were very lucky to have that. So um, thank you for painting that picture. I really uh, appreciate it. Um, obviously, pregnancy and delivery is super complicated. We've been doing this thing for a few hundred thousand years, and it's still hard, but we should be handling it much better. So again, I want to uh, focus on these inputs, uh, Congresswoman. So I want to talk about the environmental factors here. We talk a lot uh, here about how clean air, clean and affordable water, uh, healthy and affordable food, uh, reliable and affordable shelter. These are all human rights. Without them, it's pretty difficult uh, to pursue life and liberty and, and happiness. But in America, I think it's the latest statistic was something like 68% of, of uh, black people live within 30 miles of coal plant. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, there was a report last year that said air pollution is probably responsible for about 500, this is globally, 500,000 infant deaths in 2019. Mm-hmm. And a lot of those were in low-income countries, folks are still using wood fires at home and coal fires at home. Um, but we also know that, especially in the U.S., uh, particulate matter from highways and airports uh, can basically act like tobacco smoke, whether you smoke or not, mm-hmm. inside the body. Mm-hmm. Cause birth defects, early labor. Um, so I want to talk about what those detrimental environmental effects 
to black moms and babies mean for your work and where you're coming from uh, as far as your, what the whole Momnibus is trying to affect? If we could just focus on those for just a moment. Yep. So we might have seen the same study because when it came out last summer, um, essentially said that um, air pollution and extreme heat mm-hmm. had um, detrimental, as you said, impacts on both maternal and infant health. Mm-hmm. And we knew that we needed it in the Momnibus. And so quickly got to work in crafting the Protecting Moms and Babies Against Climate Change Act uh, that I have introduced with Senator Ed Markey from Massachusetts. And so what this legislation does is everything from like real practical, concrete interventions, like if you need an air conditioner, we can set up a program to get you an air conditioner, um, to also doing the work to um, continue to study uh, the impacts of climate change and this extreme heat and air pollution on these maternal health outcomes, recognizing that so, and and also offering some real specific community supports. So for example, we know from the environmental justice movement that there are often clusters, right? Cancer clusters, for example, or in our maternal context, right? Um, A lot of people who are experiencing pregnancy complications or deaths um, happening in a geographic area. However, the healthcare system that serves that community may not be in that neighborhood, may not be in the community. And so the providers have often missed it, right? So, Mm. So if you think about a health system, a hospital, for example, even an academic health system in our major metropolitan areas are not always doing the data analysis by zip code, by census block to determine if there are predictable trends, right? They're they're not plotting that data. They are oftentimes uh, receiving patients case by case and treating that person based on the information that presents right in front of them. And so if it's not captured in some vital signs, if it's not captured by the birthing person saying, you know, I sometimes have a hard time breathing at night, right? Like if they're not making those complaints, the healthcare system may not know that they're living in the shadow of a chronic pollutant, right? And so if we are able to support the community-based people who know Mm -hmm. all about the legacy of the environmental health impacts of whatever contaminants or neighborhood issue that's going on, right? Then we can help create those linkages with the care providers to get these families and birthing people the resources that they need. That's basically the thesis behind the bill. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. It's it comes yeah back to you know if, if I guess the um, Silicon Valley guy essentially said like if you can't measure it, you can't change it or whatever it might be. And then right. what did MC Hammer say uh, a couple of weeks ago? If uh, if you're going to measure, you have to include well, yeah. the measurer. But if measure we're not looking for these things and people don't know to proactively put them into the system by talking to their providers about it, uh, whether it's primary health and, and asthma or it's or it's an OBGYN or whoever it might be, or mm-hmm. cardiopulmonary person, then yep. we're just not going to register that stuff on the whole and it's not going to become part of it. That's super helpful. Thank you for explaining that. Yeah. And that makes, yeah, actually, let's talk about insurance. Uh, uh, that That's a good little segue there. Obviously, health insurance uh, is kind of a nightmare here. And, you know, despite Obamacare, it's still mostly tied to to corporate work and it's very exclusive and very expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, of, of everything that we've discussed above, what, uh, you know, about a, the perfect uh, ideal standard uh, situation, what does a, a lack of health insurance 
do to to impede a standard uh, of care for for black moms. Right. So in our country, if you are a low income, so one thing that we didn't cover in our statistics, please, was that this disparity persists regardless of income and education. So in America, Black women are three to four times more likely to die, regardless of how much you make, how much, how many degrees you have, whether you have prenatal care, right? Whether you had health insurance, like you can control for all of it. You could be Beyonce and Serena Williams, yep, or you could right. be a girl around the corner in the hood and you have the same very high likelihood of severe morbidity or mortality, right? So I use these words we a lot because I put myself in in, in with yeah. ladies across the country. Okay, sure. so um, at, the, at the lower income levels in our country, if you are pregnant, you are eligible for Medicaid. If we're gonna just streamline all of this. Sure. Low income birthing people are eligible for Medicaid. If you are in a state that did not expand <clears throat> Medicaid under the ACA, mm-hmm. Prior to the American Rescue Plan, which we'll get to in a second, your coverage cut off 60 days postpartum. Okay. Okay. Whereas the baby's coverage continues on. The mom's coverage cut off. Now, I told you that in that extended postpartum period, a quarter of the maternal deaths, infection, um, mental health substance use, right? We have all kinds all kind of reasons sure. mom yeah. in this country. Um, and so we were missing a great opportunity to save their lives because they didn't have healthcare coverage. If you don't have healthcare coverage, you're not seeing your provider, both for a preventive visit, like, oh, this is just our check-in during the standard of care conversation that we had. But also if something goes wrong right. and you know you don't have health coverage, that, that cost conversation comes in and you're like, well, I'm just gonna stay home and try. Let's see yeah. if I can make it, right? Because sure. if you afford it, folks, folks know what medical bills mean, yeah. right? We are adults and remember what that pre-ACA time was like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the medical bankruptcies were a thing and a lot of people are not volunteering for that kind of debt. Sure. Okay, so the American Rescue Plan, I should also say Medicaid is so important to this conversation because the Medicaid program pays for 66% of deliveries for African-Americans in this country. Two thirds of all births are, d- are paid for by Medicaid. I, I was just gonna ask you, cause you differentiated between uh, states that have taken on uh, the, the ACA supported. I think there's like 16 states that haven't yet. Does that number you just gave, is that different for those states that haven't picked it up yet or that have? So so that 66% is paying for the delivery. Okay. It's paying for the, the birth. Right. And so that's how we know that those people are qualifying okay. for Medicaid. So okay. a third of African-Americans having babies in this country have private health care for the delivery. Two thirds have Medicaid, okay? But the, so, and yet the deaths are equally dispersed, whether you have private insurance or Medicaid. They're still right. it's equally likely to die, okay? So we've been working on what we call a postpartum Medicaid expansion for a number of years in the Congress. Um, This is the solution that everybody agreed, everybody from the private insurance companies to the progressive groups, the March of Dimes, the providers, the nurses and the docs, right? Like the OBGYNs, ACOG has been such a great partner for us, right? The nurse midwives, everybody agrees, let's do this Medicaid expansion. 
it passed the House unanimously in the last Congress, unanimously Did to extend this Medicaid coverage. Yes. Nothing full passes. Full <laughs> unanimously in the House these days. And then it went over to the Senate. And Mitch killed it. Sure. So we brought it back this year. And with the change in political leadership in the Senate and with the change in leadership at the White House, President Biden has been a great partner for us on maternal health issues. And Vice President Harris actually introduced the mommy bus with me last Congress, right? Awesome. So she she goes hard for these issues. Yes. And they were willing to put this postpartum Medicaid expansion in the American Rescue Plan, the recent COVID relief bill. So this is now the law that states have an opportunity to expand their postpartum Medicaid coverage to a full year. It's a great incentive, even for those conservative Southern states that have been holding out forever. Sure. The politics around Medicaid expansion have changed. So now we are giving them a financial incentive to do it and political cover to do it. And um, there's a great multicultural coalition of support to get this done. So that is one area that we feel real good has been addressed. However, we still have this issue where even if you have private coverage, you're still still likely to die. Right. But we still need solutions like the mommy bus, these comprehensive things. Why? Because, well, people need, as you said, social determinants of health, housing, transportation, nutrition. We have a pandemic, which has just been devastating for maternal health. And then we have like a workforce where I I emphasize choice during my, you know, standard of care. Sure. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. So many pregnant people don't have a choice among providers and it's problem. Right. No, that makes sense. And and that's what I, I love about the Momnibus is, is that it is this comprehensive suite of ways to attack this thing. And and that is one of the things we come back to. We're really focused on, on these action steps as we put them, whether it's climate change yeah. or clean energy or COVID or whatever it is. There's a really great quote from, uh, there's a science writer, writer I feel like you would love if you haven't read Ed Yong for The Atlantic. Um, mm-hmm. Oh my God, he's amazing. So he, he wrote a book, um, uh, called um, we we are multitude. I can't remember. Uh, great science writer. Anyways, he wrote some incredible stuff the past year for the Atlantic. Uh, but he had this quote about COVID, and it applies to this, to COVID, to climate change, whatever it is. Which is essentially, to paraphrase, was you know COVID was a a flood that exposed all the the cracks that we already had in our society, mm-hmm. and and those were there. And you know, I've thought about it as like, look, this was like a pop quiz, right? To show like, are you ready? What were the choices you've made up to this point? Yep. Because you're going about to find out how they went. And it turns out not great uh, for for so many folks. Of course, some folks are fine um, as usual in America, but for a lot of folks, it isn't. And that's why I really appreciate that 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 the Momnibus approaches all these different things because when people say like, what are you going to do about climate change? It's like. Everything you have to do all yeah, of the right. things, and all with this, it's not just it's not just get rid of these fossil fuel plants that are poisoning the air and causing asthma for pregnant moms or children. It's not just uh, water and housing and transportation to get to these doctors of which you have no choice. Um, right. It's not just insurance. It's it's all of these different things, and so right. I, I think that's what is so fantastic about it. Um, so so for the next bit of that, um, and we just had a really fantastic conversation. I think you spent some time at Johns Hopkins. Is that right? Just a little, little, little dip. 
Hopkins. They've been great partners in this work. Um, so we had an awesome conversation about uh, why one of those conversations I wish didn't have to exist, but why young black men die within the first year of heart transplants way more than average. Uh, and yeah. with a gentleman named Dr. Errol Bush, who's the head of lung cancer surgery at yeah. uh, Johns Hopkins, and a young uh, resident, uh, Dr. Hasina Meredia, uh, who's working on this for like five years. And one of the things we covered is that only 5% of doctors in America are black and only 10% mm -hmm. of nurses are black. And mm -hmm. you spoke a little bit about, like you said, you can, you can factor in all the wealth you want, but Beyonce and Serena Williams so, you know, bravely shared these incredibly traumatic birth stories, clearly showing, again, like celebrity means nothing when it comes to relying on a system that, it, I mean, in your most vulnerable, dangerous moments, only accounts for skin color. And I, 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 I want, I would love if you could talk a little bit about what role implicit bias plays in black maternal mortality, because clearly it affects not just this area, but like I said, the heart transplants and so many others across the board. Yeah. So let's just be clear about one thing to Please. start. There is nothing wrong with the women slash birthing people. Okay. Right. It's not some genetic issue. It's not like, oh, they just can't carry their babies. Like, no, this is about a racist healthcare system. Now, when we talk about bias, there's two kinds of bias. There's implicit bias, which is like, I'm a healthcare provider going about my day and I don't quite realize that I assume that Black people have a different pain tolerance than white people. Sure. Right. That's implicit bias. Sure. Then there's explicit bias, aka racism. Sure. Both are at play here. Both. They are both dangerous they are both deadly, and you cannot solve this problem if you only tackle one. So there's a lot that's been made about implicit bias. Why? Because people are more comfortable with it. They of are course, I didn't know. Yes, they're uncomfortable right, right. actually examining what could be explicitly furthering inequality in this country, leading to death. Not sure. just an adverse health outcome, not just like an, oh, we have a delayed recovery, but right. death. Right. Unnecessary, unwarranted death. Okay. Sure. So in our bill, we have support for training. Now, I, I know somebody out here is rolling their eyes like, Lauren, now you know there is no one-hour webinar or one CEU credit that is going to solve this problem. And I agree. Sure. I agree. But there, there is an opportunity to start that conversation. And then there's also incentives for people to begin examining within their institutions, their outcomes, in order to tease out what's implicit and what's explicit mm -hmm. and to be able to begin to work through this. There's also support within our legislation to, to reach providers while they're training because there's a lot of bias in the training. So for example, mm -hmm. In, in my nursing education, we were taught some version of, well, there's just something about Black people where they're more likely to die. Like, um, that's, that's a very general statement that is really open to interpretation. And it's not actually about the Black people. It's sure. more about the system, right? Yeah. And we have to be very clear, very clear about that. Um, and so we have funding to support that. And then to the choice piece that I spoke about earlier, um, we have a society that is very physician-oriented when it comes to healthcare and, and especially labor and delivery. The data show that uh, there are other healthcare providers who have 
the same or better, right, quality outcomes for healthy, normal pregnancy. So not, not the complicated, you know, outliers here, but sure. you can have a choice. And so we want mm-hmm. every birthing person in this country, no matter if they're urban or rural, whatever race, whatever language that they speak, to have their choice of providers for obstetrician, gynecologists, midwives, nurse midwives, lactation consultants, doulas, and make sure that there's both the people in the communities, that they are racial and ethnically diverse, that they speak different languages, but also that there's the payment available by their either their insurance company or Medicaid so that there is true choice in this environment so that if you say, you know what, I don't have it in my spirit today to educate somebody on the nuances of what it means to be a Black woman in America, which, fair girlfriend, I hear you. (laughs) I don't always have it in my spirit either. (laughs) But you can find a provider where you walk in the door and they're like, okay, you're welcome here. Sure, sure. Because it is, I mean, look, everybody is... I mean, I feel like everybody's going to the going to the doctor in a, in a vulnerable place, whether it's at your annual yeah. checkup if you're lucky enough to have those or, or whatever it might be. But but there is, and again, just speaking from the guy who was sitting in the chair in the corner of the room, oh. where we went through some stuff, absolutely. But there is nothing quite as vulnerable as going in and being like, right. my body is changing. I fit nothing. I feel terrible. I'm angry. I hate that guy. You know, all of the usual stuff, and that's like still borderline standard stuff. It's it's it's. And, and again, I, I can't even imagine, but, and, and even more so for my wife or all, all the many women, but mm-hmm. try the moment where the doctor comes in and says, there's no heartbeat. Start with that. And, and if you don't have someone who can speak to you and who gets you, and like you said, if some of these people don't have time to try to understand you with our standard doctor visits taking five minutes, you know, it, it's, it's just incredibly unfair. And, 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 you know, like you were saying, there's a difference between implicit and explicit bias. And we try to be very transparent about that here, especially as two white guys. I, I think I saw a stat, and please correct me if you're, if I'm wrong, that is it, is it that women and black women in Illinois are six times as okay. likely to die? Okay. So in any given system, if something is twice as bad for a cohort of people, you'd say, boy, that's broken. Pretty when broken. something is three to four times or six times as bad, the answer is the system is designed that way. And it's designed by people who have looked like us, like all of the other systems. Uh, they're the ones who put those fossil fuel plants there. And so that's why I, I want to focus on these, this comprehensive plan yeah. to, 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 to take apart this system and rebuild it because mm-hmm. that it, this is the way it was designed. It's not, it's not broken for anybody. Um, uh, can we talk a little bit about the, the, again, trying to clarify for everybody, the OBGYN and midwives and lactation consultant side of it. Can you explain a little bit about what role midwives can serve during pregnancy and birth. And they're not covered by insurance. Is that correct? There's two different kinds of midwives in this country. There's nurse midwives, which are registered nurses. Um, They've completed a four-year bachelor's degree. They are licensed as a nurse. And then they have additional education in midwifery. They have to pass a certification exam and they are what's called an advanced practice registered nurse. So sort of like a nurse practitioner, which you might be familiar with, or a nurse anesthetist, right, that does anesthesia um, that you might be familiar with. We have within the nursing profession, a specialist that that deal with maternal health, um, women's health, and labor and delivery. So that's one type of midwife. Okay. Oftentimes in states that, um, that 
allow advanced practice nurses to practice at any level, there will be some type of reimbursement offered for the nurse midwives. So they'll be within your network. There just may be fewer of them and uh, they may not have any openings because they're very popular. (laughs) Um, Wherever they are, they usually have very full caseloads. Okay, then there's lay midwives or just midwives. And those are um, people who may not have a, may not, but they may have a different certification, but they are not, they're not required to be licensed necessarily in the same way um, that you would find a nurse midwife. They often are trained um, through a apprentice program. That's like the best analogy I can offer, right? Okay. They, they, they train under someone. They're very, very skilled and have their own practice in their communities. Those folks are the ones that may not be covered in all insurance plans. Um, and they may be more difficult to find if you are relying on your insurance provider to give you all of your options. If you live in, and in some regions of the country, they are very plentiful where Mm. think about like maybe the rural South where there are health systems that haven't been as welcoming to some individuals, then there have been generations of midwives that have been trained to care for families in that community, right? Sure. So they'll be like very plentiful in one geographic area. Sure. To- right. Okay. So that's generally the difference. Um, and then there's lactation consultants who are licensed, who are often employed by health systems or employed by, and sometimes you will find them as independent providers that have their own practice, but mm-hmm. generally they'll be connected. I remember in, the office right in the hospital. They were like, go talk to that lady. That's right. Oh, wow. Especially at your academic medical centers or your larger healthcare systems will have them on staff. And then there's doulas. Doulas are the, the birthing person's advocate. Okay. So they are like a, they um, are your delivery like assistant is like the wrong word. They are your support sure. person, sure. right? Um, both as a physical support person, an emotional support person, that anchor, um, and then they do the follow up care. Okay. Also, um, often we have been working very aggressively to make sure that doula services are covered by private insurance and Medicaid, and that is still something that's in process. So that's why the mommy bus is so important. We are providing a pathway for not only there to be more of these providers and we're diversifying those provider workforces, but then also making sure that there is coverage (laughs) for their services in these different health plans. It's a lot. It's a lot, but it's also like, this is a problem that has been around my entire lifetime. I'm 34. It's also a problem that has a solution. And it's not some like pie in the sky solution. This is like an evidence-based solution. Right. And so, you know, am I a Democrat? Yes. Am I a millennial? Yes. Do I have some progressive point of views? Yes. But is this right. like some like radical progressive solution? To it's the one thing we do. No, this is like so common sense. And some of the policies in the mommy bus are bipartisan. Sure. Uh, our veterans bill is bipartisan so because weird. hello, single payer healthcare system, the VA, we have an opportunity to save moms sure. lives. Um, our mental health bill 
is bipartisan. In Illinois, the number one cause of maternal death, overdose and suicide. Number one, number one cause. And remember, Illinois, six times more likely to die. Such a problem. And then newly in the Senate, we have a Republican lead for our Tech to Save Moms bill, which is trying to have equity in telehealth and access to some of the digital tools that have come onto the market. So we're excited. Um, Well, I guess one quick thing, like you you talked about, I mean, the the overdose that happens afterwards. Um, I mean, postpartum depression, at, at the least, is is nothing to mess with. It, it is That's something right. super substantial. If you Period. could just take just a moment, uh, and then I would love to kind of hear, besides all of those reasons, besides it being this incredibly just and right thing to do, sort of what what's really driving you personally on this, but could you talk for just a moment about what it means to have the, this other thing that we're totally lacking on, which is any sort of paid leave or childcare after birth? Mm. You know, what, what does it mean uh, for people, especially working hourly and part-time jobs, what would it mean for them to be able to have paid leave after childbirth to 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 accomplish any of these things to to be healthier? Okay, so on the maternal um, mental health piece, everyone I think now, at least of our generation, is very comfortable with the idea of postpartum depression. You know, um, folks are more comfortable talking about it, asking about it, checking in on friends that might be new moms, make sure everything's sure. okay. But what happens when it goes beyond depression? Yeah. When there's anxiety, when there's a substance use disorder, where there is suicide ideation, do you know where to go in your community? Do you know if there's an expert that is very clearly skilled on maternal health risk in this space? Many communities don't have those level of specialists. And I'm not saying you're looking for like a maternal health psychiatrist. No, I'm just saying someone who's had experience here. Uh, Yes. That's what we're trying to fix because this is a resource that we need everywhere. In the same way that we got all these Narcan grants going out so that yeah, we can save somebody it. that overdoses everywhere, we need this kind of support. Sure. Everywhere. Yeah. Okay. Now, on paid leave, paid leave is critical. Now, we don't call it paid parental leave anymore. We call it paid family leave mm-hmm. because this is something that impacts everyone. And it shouldn't matter where you're, whether you're an out LGBTQ American that wants to adopt. Sure be able to access that paid leave or whether you're someone who's dealing with elder care or whatever, right? Paid leave is so important. And many, many, many workers, I would say the majority of workers in this country do not have access to um, comprehensive paid leave, which includes paid time off and job protections. Both are critical. Now, there are documented issues with pregnant people being discriminated against in terms of being offered employment, being offered advancement. Um, And we are working to address that in the Congress. We have a Pregnant Worker Fairness Act bill that we are going to be advancing next month. Um, But then also, we do need to have these paid leave to economic security is important for everyone. Period. Paid leave is an economic issue. It allows for complete participation in the workforce. Let's talk about our COVID economy and how we still have 10 million people unemployed that were employed last year at the beginning of this pandemic. We are not going to have a full and robust economy unless we have full participation from the labor market, which includes, hello, birthing people and women. And If you have children or if you have a family, you need to have these kinds of protections, again, that offer the paid time and the job protection. Yeah, absolutely. 
So, you know, the we have a bill called the Family Act. If you want to learn more, okay. uh, please, please, please be in touch with your legislators right. about that in addition to the Mommy Bus. I love it. Um, we're going to finish with the action steps in a sec, but what's, what's besides all of this, you know, yeah. what, what, what is, what is, what is driving you on all of this personally? It's the stories. I mean, listen, when I was at Hopkins, I did my master's in public health, master's in nursing degree at Johns Hopkins. I was the youngest member of my class there. I had a good girlfriend, Dr. Shalon Irving. When she enrolled in the MPH program, she already had a dual doctorate in gerontology and sociology. She was brilliant. She was beautiful. Um, and we were just good friends. Well, fast forward like 10 years. And when I was wrapping up my service in the Obama administration, she was getting ready to have her first child. And she was so excited. It was a beautiful baby girl named Soleil. And then three weeks after she gave birth, we lost her. She she died. And it was devastating. Shalon was a lieutenant commander in the United States Public Health Service Commission Corps. She had focused her life and her work as an epidemiologist on ending health disparities. And she was working at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And I will never forget just being devastated at her funeral. And the CDC director came and spoke at her funeral and was talking about how we know and someone who is like an expert in this area still dies because of all of these issues that we talk about. Now, Shalon's story has been uh, well-documented by ProPublica, actually. Had this great article series that NPR, I think, picked up about her life and death. Um, and now her mother, uh, Ms. Wanda, has started an organization called Dr. Shalon's Map um, that folks should look up if they like. But it took something that was, you know, like a clinical fact and made it really personal to me. And then, you know, it just emphasized how much I was not alone. I feel like all of us in know somebody who's been impacted in this way. And I knew that if I were elected to Congress, this is something I wanted to solve. Because again, this is a problem that has solutions. And it's just been a policy yeah. choice by those in power to skip it. One thing I was always surprised, I, I learned in my first term in Congress, I always thought that Congress worked on the issues that was most important in our country. No, Congress worked on the issues that the members raised. Sure. We determine the work that we do. And if we are not there to lift up these problems and say, we've got to solve these problems, it doesn't happen. And you could have the best advocates in the world. And if, and if the person in the seat doesn't want to hear, doesn't care to hear, isn't conditioned to hear about that problem, you're not going to have forward progress. Representation matters. And so that's why I've been so passionate about this issue. It's about saving lives, period. Sure. Uh, well, I'm terribly sorry for your loss. Um, you're right. Everybody does know, know someone uh, in, in some capacity. It's like pre-ACA. I remember riding on a plane and somebody telling me that the pre-existing conditions part was ridiculous. And I was like, oh, then you must not know somebody because if you know someone with a pre-existing condition, there's no way to oppose this thing. That's right. Well, thank you for sharing that. I really appreciate it. Um, I know you got to run. Brian, bring us home with the action steps part. Uh, Congresswoman, just want to get specific on people who uh, can get out there and support the what you're doing. The reason we, we do this thing, yeah. Um, uh, if, you, if you could just, in the time you have left, just uh, let everybody know, just tell, please just tell me what I can do to support you in any in every way possible. <laughs> Well, thank you. You know, we're so excited. The Momnibus is up to over 120 co-sponsors in the House and wow. Senate. 
which is incredible. Um, you can learn more about our legislation. Um, if you Google Black Maternal Health Momnibus, M-O-M-N-I-B-U-S, um, it'll bring you to our caucus website and there's all kinds of fact sheets and information about the legislation. And then um, we need folks to reach out to their elected officials. So okay. every everybody listening has one Congress member and two senators. And we need all three of those people <laughs> to be on this bill. And so the way that it works is the mommy bus has been introduced as a standalone package, all 12 things. Sure. We need them to co-sponsor that. So ask, you have to explicitly ask them to co-sponsor the mommy bus Perfect. and then ask them to co-sponsor each of the 12 individual bills. Okay. Okay. So it's 13 things in total that they need to co-sponsor and all of the HR numbers and, you know, that kind of relevant sure. information is yes. in um, on the, on the website. Awesome. Perfect. We will we will draw that up into a very specific yes, script so yes. people can just mash their fingers against the button and it's get it done. Oh, my gosh. Thank you. Um, Congresswoman, we know you got to run. Um, thank you so much for your time, for everything you're doing. Uh, we usually have a little lightning ground of ridiculous questions we ask, but you have so many more important things to do. <laughs> oh, this isn't the most uh, important thing you're doing today, talking to us on this podcast? Why? Yeah, yeah. So we're, no. um, <laughs> thank you so much. We really appreciate it. We look forward to talking to you once this is all passed and you fixed so much. Uh, and um, thank you for kicking yeah, butt and being it. a leader in my home state and and very close to my home city. I much appreciate it. Yes, not about yes, you, Brian. Thank you. Thank All right. you. Um, we will talk to you soon. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. You guys. You Take too. Care. Thank you. Thanks to our incredible guest today, and thanks to all of you for tuning in. We hope this episode has made your commute or awesome workout or dishwashing or fucking dog walking late at night that much more pleasant. As a reminder, please subscribe to our free email newsletter at importantnotimportant.com. It is all the news most vital to our survival as a species. And you can follow us all over the internet. You can find us on Twitter at importantnotimp. Uh, just so weird. Also on Facebook and Instagram at Important Not Important, Pinterest and Tumblr, the same thing. So check us out, follow us, share us, like us, you know the deal. And please subscribe to our show wherever you listen to things like this. And if you're really fucking awesome, rate us on Apple Podcasts. Keep the lights on. Thanks. Please. <laughs> and you can find the show notes from today right in your little podcast player and at our website, importantnotimportant.com. Thanks to the very awesome Tim Blaine for our jamming music, to all of you for listening, and finally, most importantly, to our moms for making us. Have a great day. Thanks, guys. 